0: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There will be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? I think it would be an understatement to say that China has a difficult relationship with drugs. Most infamously, the Opium War saw British soldiers fight against the Qing dynasty to protect the British right to sell opium to China. Now, when the Qing lost, it wasn't just the sobriety of their people that they lost, but a series of ports, concessions and reparations signed away in the so-called unequal treaties. Hong Kong was lost to the British at that point, and this is where the Chinese mark the start of the century of humiliation. The memory and the trauma of opium addiction is still bound up, with the notion of national decline in China, or at least that's what I grew up thinking. So imagine my surprise to read about widespread drug abuse in the early 2000s in a recent article by the translator and writer Dylan Levi King. Not just any drug, but ketamine, a synthetic party drug popular in the West and commonly described as horse tranquilizer. Dylan joins this episode now and we're going to be talking about the wild naughties in China, the party scene there, and whether or not China has got over the opium wars and why those party scenes are no longer seen in the country today. So Dylan, welcome to Chinese Whispers. To start with, can you paint the scene for us? I mean, I wasn't there in the nightlife in the early 2000s. What was it like?
1: Yeah, this is one of those things that you would really only know about if you had lived in china in the late 1990s and early 2000s where you had a whole bunch of people who were leaving home for the first time going out to the big city for the first time leaving their parents leaving their work units for the first time and discovering you know a new leisure life which frequently involved ketamine a synthetic drug
0: what what is ketamine for people who don't know
1: I always associate it with British people. I assume all British people have taken ketamine.
0: I'm not sure our listeners would necessarily agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. It's an anesthetic. It's different from morphine or benzodiazepines in that it's a dissociative. So it sort of disconnects your mind from your body, your mind from the world around you. Right. So you could actually have an operation done on you. You would be somewhat conscious, but you wouldn't feel the
0: scalpel going
1: into your skin. It's because your mind would be disconnected from your body.
0: So coming from a medical background, then that's why this drug was developed. But these Chinese, like much of the people in the rest of the world, were using it for recreational purposes. And was that quite a big central part of that kind of nightlife? Yeah, it was,
1: it was a big part because there were no other recreational drugs at, at the time. There wasn't, you know, heroin, something people were still deeply afraid of. Heroin, morphine, mm. methamphetamine wasn't really a big thing yet. It was sort of, there was a growing methamphetamine culture in Southeast Asia and in Japan, of course, since the war, methamphetamine had been big in Japan and Korea, but it hadn't really gotten to, to China yet. So ketamine was basically the major recreational drug. You could see it almost every nightclub, karaoke parlors, people would be doing ketamine
0: and the authorities as you write turned a semi blind eye to it?
1: Yeah, I mean I I tell the story in the article about the the riot police doing their nightly rounds of the clubs, walking in and seeing tables covered in ketamine <laughs> and basically, you know, nodding their head and and shuffling out. It was it was all over the place in the in the 2000s.
0: That's a mad thing for me to think about. And there's something that you pick up in your piece as well, which is that for people who are growing up in a later period, as as I did, not in the party scene in the early noughties, that's really shocking because of what we know about China and its relationship with drugs. So obviously, there's the infamous opium wars. And what I've known about drugs in China is what I've learned from history lessons about the opium wars. And then Books and literature and films, which portray drug taking as this the worst of all evils, to give yourself up to this sort of thing. So so the fact that there was that that moment, that window of liberalism, is is really shocking. And you write that it wasn't always like that. No, I mean, I think
1: the one reason that ketamine was able to take off is because it wasn't opium, it wasn't morphine or heroin, which people were. Still, at that time, having drilled into their head that it was a very dangerous drug and it, the opium wars are what started the century of humiliation. Ketamine was sort of a different kind of lighter thing that could kind of pass by. You know, it was made in factories in China. It was something that was used by the People's Liberation Army when they were fighting in Vietnam. It was a medicine. It was, it was legal at that time. So it didn't have kind of the, the fearsome reputation of heroin, which was still, through this time, being demonized.
0: Well, Dylan, as a Westerner, when you first got to China, what did you think of the Chinese relationship with opium and opiates like heroin? Were you surprised by what you saw? Sure.
1: I mean, but I would say, you know, at this point, like the use of heroin is something that since even since 1976 has been mostly confined to border areas. So most Chinese people have never seen anybody strung out on heroin or or shooting up on the street, as we all in the West have seen. You know, it's something that's mostly sort of legendary and mythic, you know, the, the dangers of heroin. And the smashing opium and completely driving it out of the country was one of the key sources of legitimacy for the party. That was how they helped end the century of humiliation, by completely driving out all opium. There was really no opium being taken or grown in China from the early 1950s up to the the 1970s. They really effectively drove out that, that great source of humiliation and embarrassment.
0: How did they do that? Was that the Mao government?
1: Yeah. I mean the nationalists tried to do it to some extent, but they were the, the situation was so chaotic and they were quite corrupt and so they would pay one warlord to grow the opium and sell it directly to them. That was one of their schemes that they were buying the, the opium. But it was so it was so chaotic that they couldn't really do anything. It really took the the post-1949 liberation where they would just go through and smash everyone and put them under the central authority of the party. Mm. There were no warlords who were cutting deals with them to stay in power. They were completely clamping down and putting total control over those border areas, which were very hard to keep under order.
0: And you mentioned these people who take ketamine being away from their families. Who are these people who created the social, basically the demand for, for this new drug?
1: They're usually called the floating population. These are the people who were, when they started to turn China into the factory of the world. They needed a whole bunch of people to come from their hometowns down to the the new economic zones. What are they called in English? Uh, special, economics. special economic. Special economic. Special economic zones. Special economic zones. Yeah, so in Shantou and Shenzhen, they had a whole bunch of people, hundreds of millions of people fled down to the coast. Not fled, but, but migrated to the coasts. And when they were there... They were suddenly, unlike their parents' generations and their parents' parents' generation, they were completely liberated from their work unit, from their families, from their hometowns, and they formed new social networks based on where they came from or based on where they were working and sort of built a new culture that was completely fresh and different from what their parents had grew up with.
0: And these are people who are not white collar workers. They're, they're going because they couldn't find good enough jobs where they are. And they're doing pretty menial work, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're assembling things in factories for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And, you know, that's sort of the appeal of, of ketamine. You know, it's, it's one of those drugs that sort of lets you, you know, disconnect from the world and float away.
0: Well, you say liberated in your previous answer, but, you know, they they also seem unanchored rather than liberated. You know, you're away from your family. And we hear a lot about migrant children, the children of this generation of people who are left behind and looked after by grandparents. So, yeah, I mean, unanchored is one way of looking at it as well. Yeah,
1: and, you know, I tend to think, you know, you talk to a lot of those kids who grew up sort of like on the cusp and they talk really nostalgically about how they grew up their parents worked in the factories. Their uncle worked in the factory. They knew all their friends. They went to the same kindergarten, and then life completely changed. Like in the in the nineteen nineties, they look back really nostalgically at that time. You know, I don't think going to the coast and working in a factory in Shenzhen was always the happiest existence, even if it was mm. liberated.
0: Was it much ever much taken up by more white-collar people or was that not so much a thing?
1: I mean, sure, a lot of people would have gone to Guangzhou and taken up working in software companies or or the management of those companies. Those people tended to settle down in, in Shenzhen or Guangzhou. You know, you meet a lot of them now who are like second generation. Their parents moved there to with white-collar jobs. Most of the people who worked in the factories either didn't want to stay or were not given the opportunity to stay because they couldn't get, you know, household registration there. They they went mm. back. Most of the white collar workers there, you know, found some way to stay to buy property there.
0: Yeah. Household registration being this system where the Chinese government tries to control the population within cities by literally giving you a right and other social securities for living there. But you, not everyone has that, and especially a lot of migrant workers right. don't have that privilege. So
1: you could stay there, but you maybe couldn't send your kids to school there or you couldn't get health care or you couldn't buy a house there.
0: Now, one other thing that you noticed was that a lot of these ket users were women because it broke the gender norms around drinking. So they were resorting to ketamine instead of alcohol. Can you talk a little bit about the drinking culture in China? Sure.
1: I mean, and a big thing is lots of those migrant workers were women because they were more likely to be, you know, like made to be xiaogang, to be taken sort of officially still employed by their work unit, but not given any hours or any wages, so there were, women were in a huge number. The people who went to the south, but drinking culture is very regimented and very masculine. You are sort of in warfare against the people you're drinking with. You're trying to get them drunk. You know, if you're a man, you're the amount you can drink is is very important. Oh, oh you know, if you can't drink a lot, or if you're not going to take part in these sort of Table warfare to get the other man drunk. You're, you're not a you're not a real man, and women are sort of completely cut out of that. You know, if you challenge a woman to drink, a real man will step forward and say, oh, "I'll take the shot for her." Mm-hmm. But ketamine doesn't have that culture at all. It had no culture attached to it. You just have a bunch of lines and you snort them as you please. So it was sort of they didn't have that weird ancient culture attached to it, and it was more inviting for for women. I would say
0: that drinking culture is quite funny because, you know, obviously spending a lot of time in China and now spending a lot of time in the UK. The British drinking culture is completely different. It's not really gendered, or at least if it is, it's that women drink wine and men drink beer or something Mm. like that. But no one expects women not to drink. Right. So these days when I go back to China, you know, my family, oh, you know. Cindy likes to drink. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you almost feel like you've got this um, stigma of a woman who likes to drink being a sort of a woman with loose morals right, attached right. to them. And where do you think that comes from? That it was almost like the cigar room for men and then women retire to a different room kind of feeling.
1: Yeah, I mean, this comes, this is, this is like, if you read like classics of, of Chinese literature, or even like the water margin, there's all that like intense drinking culture stuff. It has such a long history that it continues to this day.
0: I think your article is also very interesting because it's not just the social circumstances that lead to demand for ketamine, but you're also talking about what reform and opening as a period of economic growth has done to the sort of central morality of the Chinese Communist Party and the people who have grown up under you know, the Chinese Communist Party since 1949. And you're saying that economic growth has actually taken away a lot of that grounding, is that right? And, and that's where drug use comes in?
1: I, I think to some extent you need that, that sort of growth for growth's sake. You know, when you have put in as like the key idea to get rich is glorious, people are willing to do things that they wouldn't have been willing to do before you know there's that story in the in the piece about a pharmaceutical factory in Taiyuan which was slowly going under they had been charged with making antibiotics but there was no money in antibiotics at that point so they were doing anything in their power so when somebody showed up with a suitcase full of money and said you guys do have a license to make ketamine so would you make us a couple tons of course they would do it and you know, nobody would think twice about it. Or if you were in Shenzhen, and you came across an ounce of ketamine, you wouldn't think in your head, well, is this right? No, you think I got to get by, I got to make a living, I'm going to parcel this out into gram bags and make a little bit of money, you know, just that, that ideology of making money and growing the yeah. country it infects everything from the top level down to like the, the lowest worker.
0: It's fascinating. It's a conversation that I've had with some thoughtful Chinese thinkers as well, where they say, you know, at least when we were growing up, and these are middle-aged people, at least when we were growing up, we had something to believe in. We had the Marxism to believe in, even if it was turned out to be false. Then what Reform and Opening did was c- kick that completely away. And so you are, again, unanchored, and people need something, some a faith or, or a spiritual principle to believe in, and they don't have that.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, with, with growth as the only way to measure things. People will will do whatever it takes. You know, that's why there's in the 1990s, there's these horrible factory fires in Shenzhen where, you know, the doors were locked and people were just barbecued inside. Melamine in the milk is another thing. It's just once you, once you put that in people's heads, you know, it's kind of different. China, where they suddenly introduced that idea that you've got to get rich and, and grow the country. You know, we sort of had Sort of social democratic ideas in the welfare state in the, in the West to sort of t- transition, yeah, to sort of transition into that. But in China, it sort of was a, like such a violent break between Maoism and the market economy.
0: Yeah, it's a whiplash. Well, yeah. and also between Maoism, between Maoism and what came before of nationalist civil war. Right, but. It's not just you and I and the people that I've spoken to who've identified this hollowing out of the Chinese spiritual backbone. It's also, you write President Xi, because that window of tolerance for drug taking is now over. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. You know, those those scenes of taking drugs in nightclubs and, um, you know, freewheeling nightlife are definitely over. Before Xi Jinping came to power, there was a lot of talk. You know, he draws on a lot of kind of leftist populist ideas about morality. You know, you can look to Bo Xilai, who part of his populist appeal was he was smashing gangsters. He was locking up the drug mm-hmm. dealers, locking up the corrupt officials who, who benefited, who worked with the, with the drug dealers. You know, Xi Jinping drew on a lot of those ideas of giving an alternative to growth for growth's sake. And that's, that's really how he spearheaded his anti-corruption, anti-crime drive. You know, restoring to the party its its moral grounding, the party as, you know, the moral authority, somebody we can look up to.
0: What is that morality underpinned by? I mean, is it Marxism or socialism with Chinese characteristics, as it's euphemistically known? Or is it Confucianism or is it something else? Because surely there has to be a grounding. Xi Jinping thought by itself is just empty, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah arguably. I mean you know, from a from a Marxist theoretical perspective, I mean it has little to do with 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 Marxism, I'm sorry to say. But it's drawing out a lot of traditional Chinese ideas about about how the ruler should be looked at. You know, I you know, I hate to say this, I wish I wasn't saying this publicly, but like the the mandate of heaven idea. I cringe at saying that.
0: But that's sort of explain a little bit for um, people you might not know. No, forget about that. Forget about that stupid
1: (laughs) mandate heaven. But you know, it's just it draws on traditional ideas of you know pre Maoist, pre Marxist ideas of of how you know a ruler should behave and how a government should be a moral authority.
0: Okay, so for listeners who are confused about the Mandate of Heaven, it's become a bit of a cliche in the China field, which is, explains Dylan's reaction there. But it, what, what it refers to is the sort of imperial notion of the justifications of power. The idea was that each ruler had the Mandate of Heaven, a bit like the divine right of kings to rule. And if you lost that through stupid actions, unjust actions, immoral ruling, then you were you deserved to lose your throne, and a new person comes to take you over who might not be related to you. Uh, who might not even be royal themselves. So the idea is that there is this populist idea of what justice and morality should look like, and these emperors should be satisfying that. And if they don't, then they lose their justification to rule. Now, in the context of my previous question about Xi Jinping's morality, I guess what you're saying is that his morality is a bit more straightforward, a bit more gut instinct, you know, people shouldn't be inebriated on mind-altering substances, nothing outrageously Adventurous. there. And what about what about the status of other drugs like cocaine, LSD, MDMA? We've obviously talked about ketamine and opiates in this episode so far. Where do those other drugs fit in? Are they used in China? Yeah, I mean the interesting thing is that China became the source
1: of a lot of the synthetic drugs that we were, maybe not me, was some people were taking in the West. You know, it became a source of methamphetamine precursor chemicals and designer drugs. They were turned out in factories in China to a great extent. Those never really appeared in, in China, like, you know, like one P LSD, which was like a drug made to get around the ban on LSD. It was slightly different twisted little molecule that really never caught on in China in the Northeast and along the border areas in the Southwest, heroin in the Southwest, methamphetamine in the Northeast is still is still going somewhat strong. And if you go out to a club in Shanghai or Guangzhou, you could still buy MDMA, probably not MDMA, but some designer drug meant to mimic its effects. But it's nothing like it was in the 2000s. There's the fact that the police can come in at any moment and lock the door and make everybody pee in a cup has really put a damper on enthusiasm for that kind of thing.
0: Understandably. And what are the punishments if you are caught either in possession or consuming drugs? Well,
1: the laws are quite, I would say, lax compared to what we have in the West. You know, if you are caught with drugs, you're going to get you know administrative detention you know if you are a drug addict you're going to be sent to a a center to dry out it's not it's not really like in in the west where you could be caught with like an ounce of cocaine and do a whole bunch of prison time mm. really the people who are being getting in a lot of trouble are people who are selling it or manufacturing it at which point you're looking at decades in prison or a bullet in the head
0: right why do you think it's different for the consumers then I just don't think there's, there's just not the same stigma
1: about drugs that we have in the West. Like, it's like a moral failing. Like, if you... Mm. There, it's, you know, hem, hem, morphine and hem, opium is such an evil thing. If you get hooked on it, you know, it's not your fault. It's it's like a horrible, dangerous right. drug.
0: Like. And society is going to come and help you get mm. better, you poor yep. thing.
1: Yeah. In the West, if you're an addict, you've done something bad, something's gone wrong in your life, you've had some moral failing.
0: That's really interesting. Dylan, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode. Now, if you've got a bit more time, do check out my last episode with Professor James Carter, where we talk about Deng Xiaoping, the man who brought in reform and opening in China, this period of history where market liberalisation meant that drug use and morality was much more liberal, much more loose than it was under the Mao era. So do go on to that episode next for a bit more context if you haven't heard it yet, or otherwise join us again for our next episode. Thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really, really helps the podcast grow. Thanks again.